whole civilization. It's all founded on the suffering of a child. Can you honestly say that no child suffers for the benefit of your Federation? That no child lives in poverty or squalor? Well, those who enjoy abundance look away. We have eliminated hunger, want. The only difference is we don't look away. And because of that, the suffering is born on the back of only one. It's what makes it a sacred honor. That's why I choose our way. Tractum Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and first servant of contrived plot points. And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology and Elliot's chat. The chat will be silent! Our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I take a look at scapegoats. The word has its roots in the ancient practice during the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, wherein the community would figuratively lay their sins on the back of a goat and then literally send the goat off into the wilderness, carrying their sins with it. It's appropriate then that we start with Sins of the Father from TNG's third season. It was written by Drew Deenan, Ronald D. Moore, and W. Reed Morin, directed by Les Landau and aired in 1990. In a follow-up to Season 2's A Matter of Honor, the Enterprise welcomes aboard Commander Kern as acting First Officer. He makes quite an impression on the crew, imposing a relatively harsh military tone throughout the ship. You will address me as Commander or Sir at all times. I am fully aware of all Starfleet regulations, and they will be strictly adhered to by all personnel while I am in command. It is my intention to bring a sense of discipline that you may not be accustomed to. With your permission, of course, Captain. Oh, by all means, Commander. Most of the crew is frazzled, and Picard is characteristically open-minded about the cultural exchange. But the weirdest piece of all is Worf. This isn't a Klingon vessel. He's gonna have to loosen up, Commander. And it's not just us. He's been leaning into everybody pretty hard. Except... Except the one guy who wouldn't really mind it. Sensors picking up asteroidal debris ahead, Commander. Can you identify the coordinates, Mr. War? Bearing 001, mark point 03, range 300,000 kilometers. So no course correction is necessary. Is that what you are saying? It should not be needed, sir. Very good, Lieutenant. You handled that well. Yes. This finally leads to Worf confronting him in private, which in turn leads to the surprise reveal that Kern is in fact Worf's younger brother. Kern's purpose is to recruit his brother to answer to allegations against their dead father, Moog, that he betrayed the Empire to the Romulans. While Worf doesn't hesitate to answer this challenge, he insists that Kern's true identity remain a secret to protect his life should the challenge fail. This challenge brings us to Kronos and an introduction to Chancellor Kempek and to Counselor Durus, who has lodged the accusation against Moog. Privately, Kempek implores Worf to be on his way and return to his relatively quiet Federation life. 
To add to Worf's shock, Kern is ambushed and stabbed, leaving him to ask Captain Picard to step into the role of Chadich, a surrogate warrior, for the proceedings. While the crew investigate the mystery surrounding the death of Moog at Kittimer, Picard seeks out an old woman who served Worf's family as a nursemaid living in the capital city. With the information Data and company uncover and the testimony of the old woman, Kalist, Picard should have enough evidence to exonerate Worf. But Kempek calls them into his private quarters where it is revealed that Dura's father was in fact the traitor. Why did you judge my father guilty when you knew he was not? Someone had to be blamed, but only the council knew whose security code had been transmitted. Father, Juras. This Habitar should have been fed to the dogs! His family is powerful. If the truth were known, it would shatter the council. Most certainly plunge us into civil war. After Picard chastises the entire empire for its hypocrisy, Worf chooses to accept his commendation, which is essentially a legal loophole in Klingon society. This spares his and Kern's life, but condemns Worf for now to a severe exile amongst his own people, for almost two whole seasons to follow. It, you know, it occurs to me, Elizabeth, that we have talked, you have talked specifically a number of times about the human tendency in social contexts to sublimate um, what I think we've settled on as animalistic impulses and psychologies. Yeah. That's the, the best word, I think, better rather than primitive or... <laughs> Right. I mean, I, I call it animalistic. I don't think that's like an industry wide understanding or term. But like the way I see it is like we are animals, human society and culture and all that stuff is how we try. It has created a distance from that. But we still have all those primal animalistic impulses that our values, culture, civilization, all that stuff is just trying to like manage and mitigate. And sometimes it does it in, in disastrous ways. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. What, what I find really interesting about this episode in contrast is that we have kind of the flip uh, the, or like reverse thing happening. We here. really do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, the whole concept of a scapegoat to me reads as uh, like a, a socially acceptable expression of the animalistic parts of our of our psyche like it's it's so very primal so very like emotionally cathartic um for the entire group for the for the tribe or the or the or the, or the, the society uh and yet what we see here is that this kind of animalistic behavior kind of codified into these rituals is hiding this very intellectual exercise of like subterfuge and political machinations and playing chess it's it's the opposite usually we're, we're you know like we talked about with our whole maquis arc it's like we have these animalistic impulses to be violent or or heroic or whatever and we're couching them in these political sentences that are not really what it what's yeah. motivating us yeah I, it is a really interesting flip um I'm curious about what about the scapegoat is animalistic to you, because because I was actually interested it's in doing goat. this episode. It's a goat. It's an um, animal. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a goat. No. Okay. Yes, it is a literal goat. <laughs> but I think the the function of the goat I actually think is really psychologically sophisticated, mm. manipulative, but like very sophisticated. Um, and, and the reason I kind of wanted to explore this idea was because I was learning about how 
in families that have substance abuse, mm. there's often a scapegoat in the family who is not the addict, you know, and like they kind of take on the the dysfunctional title role. Like the focus is on becomes on them instead of on the addict. But by this by having the scapegoat, the addict is allowed to continue to function in the way that they're functioning. Mm. Kind of kind of like the the spotlight is off them. And and what it ends up doing is creating stability for a system. Like the system functions because there is a scapegoat. And that I just found really fascinating. You know, the fact that like, hey, we're gonna like very intentionally put someone into this role that doesn't actually belong to them. We're kind of like laying it on them whether like and they don't deserve it. But also that's for someone else's benefit. And the scapegoats rejection or acceptance of their role like the entire system depends on that yeah. like otherwise the system just can't function in the same way and i just thought that was a awful and too fascinating yeah. and i wanted to, to see how that like plays out here well especially as it relates to Worf, Worf's character because he is the ultimate insider and yet an outsider to klingon society and a federation yeah. society to a certain extent but um you know he's grown up um, outside of Klingon society because of the fact that, as this episode explores a little bit, he was orphaned in Federation territory um, and was raised by humans, but he has this intellectual understanding of Klingon society. Yeah. He's read the books. He's read the posters. He's absorbed the propaganda. He's, re- you know, he's got this historical textbook version of, of what they are. Yeah, it's like he understands what Klingons are by the stereotype, but not actually like ever being immersed in the culture itself, just like what other people have said about it. Yeah. I am a Klingon. Really? Perhaps your blood has thinned in this environment. And so it's ironic then that because he's lived up to those Klingon ideals in a vacuum, he's the only Klingon. He's like the only real, he's the only Highlander, right? <laughs> no true Scotsman kind of thing. No, um, he, yeah. because he, he's internalized them in, in, a, in a way different from like a real, like societal context, the way, you know, Kern and Kempek and all these other people can talk about honor. What does this say of an empire? Who holds honor so dear? The Empire will not be destroyed for one family's honor. But um, in private, they're Ferengi, (laughs) basically, right? Yeah. They're just wheeling and dealing. Uh, So the fact that Worf takes on the role of of Scapegoat in the end, he sort of understands... It's ironic that he has so fully in, 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 in absorbed and consumed um, this this ideal of what Klingons should be that he's able to rescue, at least for now, their society from its own internal co- uh, contradictions. We must let the past be and protect what we have now. If you leave before the Magma, no shame will come upon you. Return to your ship. Go back to your life. The challenge will be forgotten. Why would you ask me to lay aside the honor of my father, my family? And so there's this like public posturing of like, we're Klingon and this is awful. And then behind the scenes, they're like, 
please do this for us. Don't fuck this up. You know, like we need you to take the fall for this, you know? Well, and it's mirrored in Duras behavior, who is so holier than thou with the slap on the face. And like, you, you know, he's like the first one to be very condemning of Worf publicly and loudly because, of course, he's the one carrying the the actual blame. And that's all of that's problematic anyway, because the Klingons, you know, what's the title of the episode? It's like the Klingons take on the sins of their of their fathers, literally, um, mm-hmm. which uh, is weird by modern human standards, I, I think. But it's certainly I don't know. I, I would love for you to speak a little bit to that in a psychological sense. Worf didn't really know his father personally. He was a baby, basically or toddler, I guess, um, Mm. when his parents were killed. So he only has the idea of Moog to to sustain him. And yet this, uh, partially because of cultural norms, and I think also because of something else that I hope you'll speak to, he has this very deep need to live up to this impossible standard set by this dead guy. Psychological analysis of a Klingon. (laughs) All right, let's go. I can do that. I can do that. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of, like you were saying, there's like a cultural value that's kind of at play. You know, I think Western culture, for the most part, values individualism. You know, for example, we're very much like, you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, individual um, focused society. And a lot of Asian cultures are more collectively oriented, where like being a part of your family ma- matters and it's your actions reflect on your family and the and it's more important to like save face and or that your family's reputation matters more than your own individual wants and needs Mm. you know and because there has been such disrespect for different cultures throughout human history to date nowadays there's a lot of like sensitivity and respect to be given i think mostly appropriately so to other cultures you know, like we want to respect your cultural values. Um, but that, but like the, you know, for us, from a Western perspective, that is really difficult for us, I think, to like say, okay, you should give up what you individually want and might be individually best for you for your family. Like that's hard for us, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, is that hard for you for me to say uh, that? Uh, it is, it is hard. And it's, it's, I, I, it's interesting you picked up on that because Klingon culture as it was developed in TNG, specifically drew on traditional uh, Japanese culture in terms mm, of the, okay. the honor yeah. dynamics and, and family structures. So that's astute. <laughs> There's almost like this, and for Worf, you know, having this like only idea of his father versus like the actual experience of his father, um, you know, as an adult or just like throughout his life. Like with Klingon culture, I think there's like this platonic ideal that, disintegrates as soon as it hits the real world right you know um but he can't really reconcile the difference between who he thinks he's his father is and who his father might have been there's kind of like an ideal um he's almost like idealizing his father his, and but he's idealizing the idea of who his father was all the things he wishes his father was um and that can be a form of projection you know it's like you oh like you're so wonderful. You have all these wonderful qualities that belong to you and not to me. So there's kind of like, they, Worf can see all the potential good 
in his father that he has trouble seeing him in himself, whether or not that actually tracks to who Moog was. And so he's really kind of trying to do the right thing to an impossible, by an impossible standard. Yeah. And it's, again, that's the irony here is that in holding himself up to that impossible standard, he's the only thing standing between the Klingons and themselves. Yeah, but he's he also, based on those standards and values, he is not accepting this lightly. Like, mm. he is really rejecting what they're trying to do throughout the entire episode until the end. Yeah. And then it's his Klingon sense of honor to be like, well, maybe Klingon society not going into a civil war you know, like, is the greater good. And if I can take the hit for something I care about, I'm willing to do it. But that only happens in, like, the last couple minutes of the episode. And the rest of the episode, he is saying, no, I will defend my honor and my father's honor and my family's honor because that's what a real Klingon would do. And in the end, he also does what he thinks a real Klingon would do. Do not forget what he does here today. Do not let your children forget. You are the son of a traitor. Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong wrote the sequel to Enterprise's The Andorian Incident called Shadows of Pajem as part of the first season. It aired in 2002 and was directed by Mike Vihar. At Starfleet headquarters, Admiral Forrest and the Vulcan Ambassador Soval discuss the events of the aforementioned Andorian incident. A fallout appears to be a dissolution of the human-Vulcan alliance that has undergirded Starfleet's existence up to this point. The Andorians destroyed the sanctuary of Pajem. Fortunately, the monks and the intelligence operatives were given advance warning. They're fine. Was there time to remove any of the relics? I don't know. The High Command believes we're to blame for this. They're sending a ship to take you back to Vulcan. She is High Command's scapegoat for the incident. Given their remaining time together is short, Archer decides to take T'Pol along on a routine away mission. Well, she must be pretty grateful to him because their shuttle pod gets shot out of the sky and the pair are captured and imprisoned. While they embarrass themselves in escape attempts, Trip meets with the Vulcan vessel Navarre to plan a response. I'm telling you, they were kidnapped. How do you know this? Maybe the ransom demand we just received gave us a clue. They threatened to kill them both if we didn't give them what they want. You don't really care what happens to them, do you? You probably wouldn't mind if they got caught in the crossfire. You'd consider it payback for what happened at Pajem. It's not Vulcan policy to negotiate with terrorists. Not even if it saves lives. He refuses to cooperate with the Navarre crew, but decides that he will mount his own rescue attempt, but with blackjack and hookers. This leads pretty quickly to Trip and Reed also being captured, but this time by Shran, who pledges to rescue Archer in order to repay his debt to him for exposing Pajem. They manage to pull this off, but T'Pol takes a bullet for a Vulcan officer during a standoff between them and Shran's team. This act of heroism gets her reinstated on the Enterprise. Worf rejects being the scapegoat, whereas T'Pol accepts it at the beginning. She's mm -hmm. like, yes, this is 100% my fault. I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to take the blame. I'm going to take the fall. 
And that was fascinating to me, just to see the contrast immediately between the, the different ways those characters responded to the way they were being handed that card, you know? Yeah, as you say that, I don't think this was intentional, but it does occur to me there's a kind of a gender dynamic at play there. Oh. Possibly subconsciously on the writer's part. Yeah, I I, I don't think, you know, obviously we picked these episodes to talk about back-to-back, but this wasn't a response to Sins of the Father on TNG. Um, But there is something about, like, meek to Paul being like, oh, it's fine, I'll I'll, I'll be here for you, and Worf being like, no, you can't uh, lay this on me. There's something maybe in the well, subconscious there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Leonard gender dynamics not at play, I think is another way to say that. Yeah. Um, but I think I think DePaul genuinely felt like it was her fault. Like, I think, I think she believed it. I think she felt a lot of guilt for what happened. The high command is looking for a scapegoat. Someone to blame. They can't punish me, so they're taking it out on my science officer. Sounds like an emotional reaction, if you ask me. I am largely responsible for what happened. I want you to know I'm filing a protest with the High Command. That won't make any difference. You don't know that. Captain, I was assigned to Enterprise not simply as an observer, but to represent the interests of the Vulcan people. It's clear in the eyes of my superiors, I haven't done that. And I think it's that receptivity to guilt, to, to feeling responsible for mm. other people's actions. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, to, to me, the choice of T'Pol on the high commands part, I mean, obviously, yes, she was the Vulcan present who helped expose. I don't know if you watched the Andorian incident, but it's you don't really need to to understand what happened here. But she's basically... She was the Vulcan present when this happened, and Pajem was this yeah. strategic spying location that the Vulcans had to spy on the Andorians, that it was disguised as a temple. Again, we have this, like, outside appearance of, like, ritual mm-hmm. and, um, you know, depth and, like, social whatever, but really it's about political intrigue on the inside. The Like, the public-facing yeah. side, and then what's actually going on behind closed doors. Very much so. But to Paul already, just by her presence, similar to Worf in the respect that she's an outsider amongst humans, um, but for because of the situation in Enterprise's timeline where they are, um, to Paul is already a disruption to the status quo because she has served for so long on this human vessel. And I think she, the fact that she is this kind of low-key disruptive force to their perceived sense of stability as you, as you noted, that's often what a scapegoat um, is used for, makes her all the more tantalizing a target to, to be yeah. put in that position. Yeah, the, the Vulcans are trying to pin this on her in order to create some kind of stability for them, you know? And if she wasn't in that role, um, or if no one was able to be in that role, you know, what would happen to the Vulcan society? They'd have to deal with the consequences of, yeah, we were spying on the Andorians and... <laughs> Other implications that I don't know because I've watched so little Enterprise. But um, you're right. Like the the scapegoat is a way to maintain a system's homeostasis, you know, and uh, that just blows my mind that like these systems like it's like they're built in a way that like very purposefully screw someone over. And it's like, (laughs) why would you do that? Says someone living in late stage capitalism. That's, That's 
Well, there's Where's my martini. <laughs> oh hell, just forget all that and give me a martini straight up with uh, two olives for the vitamins. Sorry, viewers, but t- you know you brought up the capitalism, you brought up out the sea cards, so it's it's worth delving into a little bit here. There's something about to Paul's sacrifice that I find really interesting in a, in a political sense, um, in addition to the sort of gender dynamics and all of that. Like Worf being the good Klingon, she's the good Vulcan, right? She's the one, yeah. the only one who's willing to like live up to the ideals. Um, but in this case, the Vulcan society is um, making use of that, making use of her convictions, her internal convictions, which they have propagandized to her, right, throughout her upbringing, um, in order to, as you say, maintain the homeostasis of the system. And what that reminds me of is neoliberal uh, recuperation, right, like commodification. So you know the, Mm. if you go to like Burning Man or whatever, uh, you see those like Che Guevara t-shirts, right, which which were produced in a sweatshop somewhere in East Asia and being sold for too much money to people to say, look, I'm a rebel because I'm you know, with this uh, revolutionary character, but it's like, you're just buying a product for some evil corporation. That's what you're doing. Um, and so in a similar way to Paul is exercising deeply held Vulcan values and pu- putting yourself in the center of this blame um, and accepting that role with the best of intentions, but it's being recuperated by the society itself to use her as yeah. a tool in that system. It's, it's insidious. It's so insidious and and very well said. I'm going to remember the Che Guevara t-shirt thing forever now. Enterprise had no good reason to visit a Vulcan sanctuary. I had the opportunity to protest, but I chose not to. It's clear that living among humans has caused my reasoning to become compromised. I think I understand. You're uh, running away because you're afraid to become one of us. She is trying to do the right thing and they know she's going to try to do the right thing and it's manipulative. It's manipulative and completely the opposite of actually what she's trying to do. Like, I think she's trying to accept this blame for a noble cause, but what, act, like you said, what actually happens is she benefits a system that is not reflective of what's actually important to her we're back to season one of enterprise and this is a i don't know what you thought of it uh it's it's not a great episode it's actually kind of a bad episode in my opinion <laughs> um in in this, especially when it comes to this theme because okay so there's there, there's this interesting aspect of to paul's character here uh, worth exploring and there's like an attempt at continuity you know referring to this older episode and like the development of character and all that but it's like okay so she steps in front of the bullet and then goes to sickbay and then that resolves the issue like and then we go back we go back to uh, ironically enough we go back to status quo next week it's like yeah it's just to paul on the enterprise writers wanted to wrap something up quickly right oh like hey what about this kind of sacrifice that actually benefited you that actually like i don't know it they both like both of her sacrifices benefited the vulcans but for some reason yeah that that the second one makes them reconsider everything you're right it doesn't quite it doesn't quite like fill out correctly i don't know also like the jeffrey combs like i owe him a debt i was also like i know it wasn't jeffrey combs that's what i think of when i just oh it was jeffrey combs um 
Oh, it was? Yeah. Okay, He's great. everywhere. He's great. every character in Star Trek. You don't know this yet? He's every character. He's you. He's me. What the hell are you doing here? Looking out for you pink skins. Yeah, that made no fucking sense to me. I know I hadn't seen the other episode, but part of me was like, why do you owe him such a debt that you're now stalking him to save him? I had okay. this idea that he's following, yeah, following him around, waiting for an opportunity to repay the debt. It's, that's what you're spending yeah. your time on. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's ridiculous. But the more sort of serious disappointment here is that in Sins of the Father, we saw that the, the character dynamics helped expose a social flaw um, within mm-hmm. Klingon society. And the same opportunity was afforded to Enterprise here with the Vulcan society, and it never really gets addressed it's like yeah. you know th- th- as we mentioned in the beginning there's this issue with with the, the vulcans like the klingons use honor as their um their artifice right as their they talk mm-hmm. about it and very few actual klingons actually internalize that concept um but they all talk about it and the vulcans you yeah. could say do the same thing with logic their their hat right their alien of the week hat um is logic and they, despite that artifice, you see that they're actually pretty deceitful, and um, I guess you, I guess deceit isn't necessarily illogical, but it is unethical, and the Vulcans mm-hmm. wear ethics as much as they wear uh, logic. I, I don't know. It's just it, there was an opportunity here for for T'Pol to be as revelatory uh, in her role in the story to Vulcan society, the way that enterprise writers have written Vulcan society, at, we, at least as Worf was with Klingon society in his show. And it's disappointing that they didn't seize on it more. Yeah. Instead you see some weird kinky bondage stuff with <laughs> Archer. Right. We're going to skip all that so that Archer can rest his head on Jolene Blalock's uh, boobs. It's very yeah. progressive television. wrap up this week with another look at the first season of Strange New Worlds. Lift Us Up Where Suffering Cannot Reach was written by Robin Wasserman and Bill Walkoff, directed by Andy Armaganian, and aired in 2022. The Enterprise follows a distress call to a pair of alien vessels engaged in chase and combat. The small crafts are no match for the flagship, but it turns out the Magellan passengers include an old fling of pikes. The Magellans are carrying a child who is about to be installed as the monarch of their people, which seems to explain the attack. The child is extremely gifted, precocious, and vaunted for his political position. In two days, I will be overseeing the first servant's ascension to the throne. It's a sacred ceremony. If outsiders knew about that, they would also know Majalis would pay anything for the child's safe return. Pike is permitted to accompany Alora, the Majalan leader, to her homeworld to help ferret out a possible conspiracy against her people. Very quickly, one of the royal guards is revealed to be a spy. He manages to stab himself with Alora's knife, but more importantly, reveals that he believes himself to be fulfilling his oath by his treasonous actions. Why were you on that ship? To fulfill my oath and to renounce everything this floating house stands for. Anyway, in a classic Kirk move, Pike spends the night with Alora. When they're done, and with his hair still perfectly coiffed, Pike reveals to Alora the knowledge he has about his future in the BP chair. 
Meanwhile, Dr. Mbenga is reading stories to his temporarily materialized daughter. Check out episode 6 of this podcast to see how that turns out. The Magellans carry quantum implants in their bodies, which prevent disease of any kind. This prospect is of special interest to Mbenga, of course, who wishes to find a cure for his daughter. The Magellans have a kind of souped-up prime directive which makes the sharing of their medical technology illegal. It is illegal to share our technologies with unaffiliated races. The Federation has similar policies. Not when it comes to medical interventions. Perhaps one day, an alliance between our worlds could serve us all. Cadet Uhura proves her worth to the ship by decoding and translating a tremendous amount of data from the Magellans. She discovers that Alora has been lying about the origins of the alien combatants. Almost just as quickly, the child is kidnapped and appears to explode aboard the enemy vessel in a failed escape attempt. But this is all a ruse orchestrated by the boy's father and doctor, Gamal. He's discovered hiding in a lower deck and promptly returned to his home. During the installation ceremony, Pike interrogates Alora about all the lies, and number one interrogates Gamal about his motives. Did I say installation? No, actually, this ceremony is called an ascension, which is in turn a euphemism for um, child sacrifice. All of the boy's special abilities and traits give him the ability to regulate Majal's climate through space magic, you see. His singular sacrifice ensures the prosperity and longevity of his people. So Gamal tried to save his own son from his fate, and although he failed, offers to try and help Mbenga cure his daughter. It's quite a labyrinthine plat. Uh, <laughs> words. <laughs> Can we do that again? Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a labyrinthine plot this week. There's a lot of little storylines going on, which is one thing I, I think uh, Strange New Worlds as a series gets really right, even in its first season. It reminds me of DS9 in a good way in that respect, where you've got a lot of different characters doing kind of little little things, and it all adds up to a cohesive story. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching this episode when it first came out. Um, and, and enjoyment is a strange word based on what happens, but like, I thought that that twist at the end, I totally didn't see coming and was devastated by it. Like, And, and just like how emotionally gripping that whole thing was, which is, was so impressive. And yeah, one of the reasons I really love Strange New Worlds. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's a perfect episode by any means. Um, yeah. It kind of wanders a little bit, but, you know, being able to have, like I said, child sacrifice be kind of a, a linchpin in your story and have it feel real um, to all the characters yeah. involved is is impressive in a 40-minute show. Yeah, okay, so as soon as I agree with you, then you're going to disagree with me. I see what's going on now. Okay, that's fair. That's very fair. I'm like, yes, I agree. No. Um, but but as far as it relates to scapegoats, um, yeah. this episode, so this was actually the episode that I, I wanted to do when we thought about this um, this theme. And But as we were preparing for it and researching for it, I realized, you know, the first servant technically isn't a scapegoat. He's the golden child. You know, it, it's a very similar role. It's kind of like the light and the shadow or like two sides of the coin of the same idea because his role is still sacrificial mm -hmm. and others' well-being, systemic well-being and systemic homeostasis depend on him being in the sacrificial role. But instead of being like, you're awful, you've done something terrible, he's like, you're so perfect, you're so smart, look at all these great qualities that you have. But that's the only thing he's allowed to be. Yeah. You know? 
He's how how old is he supposed to be? Seven, eight? He's yeah, like right twelve. Yeah. I can't tell kids that age. <laughs> but he's so young, and you know he's clearly brilliant, and all it seems like such a fucking waste, you know. Well, it's really telling, you know. I when I was preparing the synopsis, I realized that I hadn't named him, and I was like, oh, what's his name? I went on to Memory Alpha. Yeah, and I was like, oh, he doesn't actually have a name, and that is intentional on the writer's part in that his role as this first, um, not first minister, first, first servant, his role as this first servant is more important than his personal identity. He's a, he's a function yeah. before he's a person. And that's mm-hmm. woof. <laughs> um, but it does, it, I, I see what you mean in terms of making the distinction between the golden child. Um, I think it used to be called golden boy. Is that right? Am I mistaken about that in terms of the probably maybe because that, Golden boy sounds like something I've heard before. But anyway, as a golden child, um, as opposed to a scapegoat, it has a different connotation because we lift up the golden child, right? We we put them on a on a platter or on on a, on a pedestal. A pedestal. <laughs> they put them on a platter. Point, we are sacrificing this kid, yeah. right? Yeah. No, and, and yeah, and you see you see it in families. Like, you know, the golden child is, oh, you're such an easy child. You get good grades. You listen to mom and dad. But as soon as they do anything that alters that story, it the hammer comes down so hard. So it's this idea of, like, who are you allowed to be? You know, and is it more about who you are innately or the function that you're serving? You know, and... and you know, we think of the golden child and, you know, like the first servant, like they're celebrated, but fundamentally it's still a sacrificial role that's benefiting somebody else. Yeah. And it, and it brings to mind the, the issue here of consent um, in, in yeah. a couple of ways. But first of all, in that, you know, Alora and the other um, Magellans insist that he chooses it freely. And we honor his sacrifice. What? Yeah, um, but it certainly isn't framed in a way as though he has a choice. Like if he chose not to do it, um, it would be a problem for him, right? And in terms of how that relates to th- that kind of coercion within families, like you're talking about, like technically, if you're put into this position and you're psychologically vulnerable to the pressure that your family puts on you, you have the choice of not fulfilling their expectations, but that is going to have major consequences that for some people in some circumstances really isn't a choice. Um, So there's that piece of it. There's also something I think, I don't think it's intended by the, by the writers here, but you know, it is a child um, and consent on the part of children is tricky, right? Because children can't, can't necessarily consent to everything. Um, But they're, they're still people. (laughs) and should be given choice about their lives. Uh, And it's 2023, it's June of 2023, a time of recording. Um, Happy Pride Month, by the way. Uh, And we've talked a number of times about trans allegories in Trek on on this show. And one of the trans panic arguments that you'll see a lot is this issue of, well, kids can't consent to HRT, for example, or... um, Mm. Yeah. you know, uh, puberty blockers, surgery, although that doesn't really happen, but you know what I mean. Uh, kids can't consent to the process of transition until they're adults. And the way the episode is framed, you can have an un- unintentional 
um, allegory about grooming here where like, oh, the society yeah. has groomed the kid into believing that he has to do this, um, fulfill this role because he just has to. And that's, you know, did you know what I mean? It's a little icky. I think so. Certainly not yeah. intentional. I mean, the next episode in this series has a, a, a very prominent non-binary trans character. Um, you remember the episode with the, the villain? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, yeah. obviously the writers aren't thinking along those lines, but sometimes you, you have accidental poor metaphors in your story. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think the whole episode is creepy, though. You know, not just this mm. potentially, like, undertow of grooming, though I, I do think it's there. And, but, you know, even if you zoom out even from this idea of, like, intentionally grooming a child in order to get them to you know, go along with something that may or may not be in their best interest. Um, There's also the sense of like, you know, kids depend on the adult caretakers around them to survive. And ultimately, they will make decisions that benefit that that they think are going to benefit their survival the most, which is why they end up in these really dysfunctional roles and relationships is because it's the only thing that will allow them to survive. You know, that's the animalistic primal instinct in us. What is it going to take for me to be able to, like, have these people take care of me, you know? And if that means I have to be the scapegoat and I have to accept all this punishment and or look at all the wonderful praise I get if I do all these things and look at how harshly I'm treated when I don't do those things, you learn, you, you, you learn what box to fit in based on how people are treating you. And so it's it's kind of like the whole gamut from specific grooming to just like, who do these adults allow these children to be? So Elliot, thank, thank you again for exploring this concept with me. It was, it was something I was learning as I've been studying um, both substance abuse and family systems. And it, and it really just struck me in a new way that kind of left me flabbergasted and outraged. But it's also something that I just hadn't really realized before in that the scapegoat is, is benefiting somebody else and that this whole system that is created and dependent on somebody taking the fall just will crumble as soon as that person steps away. So look how much power that person has, you know? And I think for people who end up feeling like, oh, my family always blames me for everything, or I have to be perfect or else like everyone around me freaks out. I I think there's this sense of um, powerlessness by that person that is apparent, like, in, like as soon as you start to uncover that, you realize how much power that person actually has. Like, if you step out of that role, and if you say, I'm not doing this dance anymore, everything shifts. Everything. Um, but that's also really, really difficult. You know, like, not everyone's able to do it. And that's, like, that's part of what therapeutic exploration and support is around Mm. is like being able to withstand the system that is trying to contort you into being one thing you know that harms you but is good for somebody else no it's interesting you mention power dynamics because you had talked about um with our tng episode uh 
the um, dynamics when you have a, a, a someone who's uh, has an addict, like an alcoholic or whatever, in the house, and how a person who is not the addict is often the scapegoat in that family dynamic. Because when we talk about substance abuse issues, often powerlessness is a theme that gets brought up in mm-hmm. terms of dealing with with the uh, the addiction. And the idea that it is a self-perception of being powerless when in fact one is very much, has a ton of power in the, in the, in the dynamics going on is an inversion of what we t- tend to think about with people who have substance abuse issues where you feel very in control and powerful, but you're actually not um, in control yeah. of yourself at the time. So I think that's really telling. Um, and of course, as you talk about, you know, <laughs> Therapy is, in a lot of ways, at least the way I think of it, it is modern society's answer to, well, religion. Not to, not to be um, uh, incendiary in any way to any folks who have belief systems listening. I, I, don't, I don't mean to ins- insult those, those modern religious practices. I only mean that religion in the past often served the function that psychology can serve now, which is exploring the way the past influences the present, which in religious terms is more of a sort of mythological um, framing and in psychological terms is more about like trauma, right? And past experiences, generational trauma and personal trauma. But also this idea of um, how you deal with it and who has the power to heal these things and exploring how that can, can happen. Uh, I think is the the magic of what therapy can be, um, to, to, to borrow a, <laughs> a term from religious practice. It can be magical. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you see when you think of a scapegoat, but I, I'm always picturing it's the last moment where you've piled on all these burdens onto this animal's back and then sent it out into the wilderness to die. Right? That's That's yeah. what it's for. I mean, that's the origin of the various crucifixion stories including the christian um concept uh, of of uh, jesus and his role as as a sacrificial lamb right um all of that it's the same sort of image of like here we're going to put everything on your back kill you and then get rid of you and then we're going to start over there's something deep in that animal psyche brain of mine that is like god what a relief <laughs> Despite all the all the my Vulcan rational pieces working, um, that is still a really powerful image and, and an attractive one. So for one, I, I really, really appreciated what you said about like the role that psychology is playing in like today's modern society. And it for me, it's like a reminder of like why you and I are friends, because you basically said about 70 percent of an essay I had to read at school. <laughs> Um, so just FYI, okay. um, that kind of, ta- yeah, that, well, that talks about how in, in, a, in ancient and indigenous cultures, the way that civilization was constructed, like there was a communal aspect that had a cosmological worldview that placed these people within a meaningful universe and it held rites of passage to help people move through the major phases of their lives and had holding containers for the events in those lives. You know, um, growing up, I transitioned from adult, uh, from child to adult, marriage, family, 
death. There was a holding container by the civilization for all of that, that we really lack now. Right? Right. Like, Most of us. Or at least uh, as, a, as a whole society, we don't share the same containers, I think is fair to say. We, yeah, we don't share the same containers. And there's kind of been a degradation of um, what has been called like the vernacular. I know that has a different word depending in a lot of contexts, but if I'm just going to call everything I just described the vernacular, mm-hmm. like we, we are re- kind of lacking just those, like, those communal holding spaces and ways of understanding our place in the universe, you know? And I think a lot of people are really struggling with the absence of that. And that is part of what some sci- psychology is doing. You know, that's the, that's part of the psychology that I'm studying and be, and I'm very purposefully going to a school with that perspective because I think it's so important. Um, so that's just a way of saying, yay, there's a reason you and I are friends because we talk <laughs> about this. Like, we have that thing. Well, that in Star Trek. It's been a long but I also think, like, ri- these rituals that humans, as humans, individuals, and cultures and societies have, like, created are an outer reflection of some inner truth that we're trying to express. And I, so I think you're right. There is this kind of instinct of how can I get rid of all the things that I wish I hadn't done and clear, clean, cleanse myself of those things. Like we have, we, it is really attractive. It's something that we feel like we need to do. Interesting that it used to be an animal <laughs> Animals in a lot of indigenous cultures and, you know, more ancient civilizations are kind of more powerful than humans, you know? Mm. Nowadays, they're kind of segregated and, like, considered not as important as humans. But they used to actually be really almost like, oh, that's the god, you know, is that animal, you know? Oh, yeah. And so... And so it's interesting to me, like, how the scapegoat potentially used to be this elevated thing. Like, what else did the goat represent? What powers did the goat represent? What, you know, like, what did that mean for the scapegoat off into the wilderness to be eaten? Like, you know, to be someone else's food? Like, it's not necessarily all bad, is, like, what I'm trying to get at. You know, like, there's there's some transformational aspect to that and, like, energetic recycling and back into the universe and evil becoming good. Like there's a lot kind of originally in that ritual that has been lost and now has also been put on the people, you know? And so it's kind of like the bastardization of this initial instinct um, that also can go along with like so much of like, we try to control other people, you know? rather than being in like an egalitarian relationship with them. There's, there's this sense of power and control that is undergirding so many interactions. And it's just so much part of our human psyche that, that I don't think needs to be there. Yeah. I think that's a whole other episode. But, you know, there's my partial soapbox. <laughs> well, well, yeah. And, and, and the way you talk about that, you know, if we frame it again in economic terms, uh, it's this concept of debt and, and moral debt. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what the scapegoat is supposed to be about. It's about the uh, paying off of, of, of student loans. No, it's paying off of debt. <laughs> please pay off my student loans. Please, for the love of God, pay off my student loans. Um, but it's uh, we see it in. A few different ways in the episodes this week, obviously in, in the in the scapegoats that we see in, in Worf paying off the moral debts of 
what he thought it was his father, but it's actually someone else's father. And as we talked about just now about the, the first uh, servant and the expectations, the, the, the sort of debt that, that, that someone who is the golden child has, right, of like, well, you were gifted with all of these incredible abilities and you're so smart and so wonderful. So you are, you owe us, child, you owe us to, to put those to use. Um, but even in something as sort of mundane and weird as Shran having this need to repay Archer for uh, his help in exposing the, the temple at Pajem. I haven't slept well since our encounter at the Vulcan Sanctuary. I don't like being indebted to anyone, least of all your captain. It's like we, we can't be comfortable with having... Just well, I have this sin. <laughs> I have this. Um, I have this thing. I, I fucked up, or my father fucked up, or our society fucked up, and I'm just going to be at peace with it and sort of heal from it. It has to be. No, no. I need to put it on someone else's back, on the goat's back. Mm-hmm. I have to transfer the debt to a different bank or a different credit card or whatever. And yeah. it's this. It's kind of as you say. It's like this poisoned thinking <laughs> that we have that we can't just sort of heal. You know, I think I've used the metaphor of like a hot potato recently, mm-hmm. like the sense of like, I can't hold this, you take it. Yeah. But it just, re- but it just remains a hot potato when we do that, you know, rather than like, how can this be transmuted and changed? And that I think is a lot of just what healing and emotional processing is, is, is the transformation of this raw material. A- and... I wish more people knew how to do it, and maybe one day more people will, and we'll all be better for it. Elizabeth, I want to thank you for suggesting this topic. Um, It's nice to get back into a bit more of a uh, an episodic form- format for us. Yeah. We took this deep dive into the Maquis, which was excellent. Um, I hope everyone has a chance to listen to that. Um, but it's nice to sort of just pick a topic and, and work through it. And um, as usual, I learned a ton from you and had a great time talking about it. Um, gosh, the amazing thing about Star Trek, I think, is that you, know, you think about any other franchise and it has very specific sort of moral... Uh, caves that it dwells in, dwells, yeah. that it dwells in. Um, and it, that can be really interesting, don't get me wrong. And, and I, there's lots of things to love. With Star Trek, there is literally no corner of the human condition that isn't touched upon in some aspect yeah. that we can find um, things to talk about, which is why we're doing this podcast, or, or, or one of the reasons. Um, this is our 30th episode of Trek No Babble, Psycho Babble. Which what? is exciting, I know. What? Oh my god! We're 30! <laughs> and in honor of that, I thought it would be fun to take a look at the 30th anniversary celebration of Star Trek that happened at this point about 30 years ago, which is terrifying as hell, because I remember when this happened. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the um, uh, both v- when Voyager and DS9 were on the air, uh, the Star Trek franchise that was really blossoming at the time uh, took on some 30th anniversary sort of themes. And we had Trials and Tribulations on DS9, flashback on Voyager. Um, and so to, to cue us up for that celebration, 
next week we're going to do our third movie night and talk about The Undiscovered Country, which fits into that um, in some interesting ways. Maybe we'll we remember the popcorn. popcorn this time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Exactly. We both are like, we have to remember the popcorn this time. <laughs> we'll just have to show up really hungry, and then we'll remember <laughs> to eat something. Okay. But I'm looking forward to sharing that. Um, that uh, Have you ever seen The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek Six? No. Okay. It's, no. it's, it's great. It's one of the really good ones, so it's going to be fun. Okay, good. I was like, great as in bad, or great as in I will actually have a good time watching this? <laughs> yes, the, the latter. <laughs> uh, okay, great. It's, great. it's very, very good. Uh, thank you again for all your insights as always thank you to our listeners and patrons and uh, comments uh, likes uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts all that stuff is extremely helpful and um, Elizabeth I look forward to sharing movie night with you next time likewise I have such a blast doing this with you I learn a lot too it's great to nerd out about these things and do these deep dives and just really appreciate doing this with you thank you to everybody who listens and you know we appreciate you too and wouldn't do this and we're glad that other people are really enjoying this as much as we're enjoying it so thanks for being along the ride with us and yeah i'll see you for movie night popcorn <laughs> popcorn happy 30 bye